Amen. All right. Hey, how many guys remember the Bob Ross guy? Remember that painter guy? The dude with the big hair, right? All that kind of cool stuff. And, and it wasn't just a big hair dude. What'd he do? He didn't just paint trees, Jim. What kind of trees did he paint? Happy trees. Remember that? Happy trees there. All these mountain landscapes, the ocean landscape. Remember that guy? Okay, all four of you, praise God. The rest of you, fake it. Okay. But apparently, I don't know if he learned this, but he not only was a cool painter and could do all kinds of neat uh, scenes there, but he was a master at fixing mistakes just like that. Okay, I got some proof. Watch this. This is amazing. You know, over and over again, I say, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. So today, let's have a happy accident and see what we can make out of it. I'm just going to grab this and lift it upward. Let's just lift upward and blend this out. Just lift it upward. Want to get all those great marks out. Just blend all together. Bob Ross was a prophet of God or something. I don't know why. But man, I tell you, don't you wish it was that easy? Yeah, to fix that. But man, I tell you what. And folks, it's, it's apparently as easy as Bob Ross made it look to fix that mistake. Uh, believe it or not, I've discovered an uh, even uh, bigger mistake that can be fixed even faster and easier. Okay? And that's this. You need to get saved right now through Jesus Christ. Ask him to forgive your sins. Uh, entrust your eternal destiny on him and his work on the cross and that alone uh, so that you're not left behind and you go into the seven-year tribulation. Don't, don't, don't make that mistake. Okay? Uh, because, and, and yet, what does our world do? They not only procrastinate and can be fixed that easy, even faster than that. What would they say? Oh, I'll fix it afterwards. Went, Excuse me. Yeah, you can get saved in the seven-year tribulation, but the Bible says those that do, your head literally is on the chopping block. Don't make that mistake, okay? And, and that's why we're going to continue our study, Are You Ready for the Rapture? And again, this is a, a study where I call the rubber meets the road, right? You can make all kinds of mistakes in life, including that portrait originally. But anyway, that's right. Uh, but uh, don't get eternity wrong, right? Don't miss out on the rapture, okay? This is not a game, right? This is serious stuff, right? You can get, it, it, the consequences are forever, okay? And, and, and so far, we've seen the basis of the rapture, the importance of the rapture, the purpose of the rapture, the reward of the rapture, the timing of the rapture, and the objection specifically to the preacher of rapture. Why? Because that's what we're convinced the Bible teaches, that the church leads prior to that. Then the last three times, we took a look at the problematic positions of the rapture, starting with the post-trib position, right? And that's their blessed hope, because what they teach is we're going to be there all the way to the end. Uh, by way of visual, again, we believe the Bible teaches pre-trib that we leave prior to the seven-year tribulation. Then we come back with Jesus at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Revelation 19, at the second coming. Post-trib says, nope, you're going all the way through the whole thing, and here's your blessed hope. You go up and come straight back down. The quickest elevator ride in human history, uh, according to them. And we saw, hey, it's not just the polar opposite of the pre-trib position that we believe the Bible teaches, but man, it's got some shocker. It's got some big biblical problems, right? And we saw that they placed the church under God's wrath. They state that the tribulation saints will be protected. No, they won't. They replace Israel with the church. They destroy the purpose of the rapture. Then they confuse the rapture with God's judgment. They confuse the rapture with the day of the Lord. They confuse the rapture with the second coming. They create a problem with the millennial population and they create a problem with the millennial separation. And then last time we saw four more problems. Man, how many do you have to get before you reject it? They destroy the meaning and purpose of, of Jesus' wedding. They create a problem with Christian rewards and they create a problem with the resurrection and they create a problem with the Antichrist. If we're here in the seven-year tribulation, who's the first one who's going to be pointing out the Antichrist? Hello, that's why the scripture says the restraining influence of the church has to be removed first, then the appearance of the Antichrist can come. That's what the Bible teaches. And again, we saw, man, that's 13. I mean, how many times, if, if you end up creating problems, confusing scripture, contradicting the Bible, how many times, how many do you need before you say, you know what, I got it wrong. I need to drop this thing like a hot potato and get back to what the scripture says. Unfortunately, people persist, okay? But that's why we reject it. It's not because we're just being insensitive weaklings who can't survive like those people in the 70s. No, we reject it because you disagree with the scripture. And the scripture is what defines my rule for faith and practice. So scripture, uh, scripture, but that's not all. The second problematic position that we're going to now take a deal with, we're going in reverse chronological order, is what's called the pre-wrath position. And as you can tell there, it's a very exciting position, right? And this is what you have to look forward to. Right? Because our blessed hope is, yay, we get to leave prior to the seven-year tribulation. They say, nope, we get to go three-quarters through. And that's why some call it the three-quarters rapture view. Right? One guy puts it this way. If you're not familiar with this view, let me explain it to you. Uh, it was made by Robert Van Campen roughly around 1990s. We saw before he was the multi-millionaire guy who just, with his own library and intelligentsia and his money to propagate it, 
wasn't because it was so popular. He bought the books and spread them across the United States, okay? And he found his, if you will, a bullhorn with uh, Rosenthal, okay, to help propagate it. But he started this about, about 1990, the three-quarters rapture. Now, it, it, it's got a, a blend of mid-trib and post-trib rationale. And he has the church continuing through the first basically three-quarters of the seven-year tribulation, hence the title, three-quarters rapture view. Now, instead of seeing the 70th week of Daniel and its events as a single period as the Bible states, right? Why do we have a seven-year tribulation? Why not five? Why not two? Why not 122? Because it's the final week, seven, of Daniel's 70th week prophecy. But it's, it's one week. Well, he chops that baby up in order to fit his preconceived idea. And he says, no, 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 it's chopped up into parts. No, but he says it's a part of it is the wrath of man, part of it is the wrath of Satan, and then part of it is the wrath of God. And through this redefinition, he basically splits the seven-year tribulation of Daniel's seventh week, which you can't do, but he does, okay, into three parts. One, he calls the beginning of the birth pains. Two, the great tribulation, which the Bible defines as the full second half. He says, no, that's the first half of the second half. And then he takes the day of the Lord, which starts at the beginning, we'll see shortly, at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, moving on through the millennium. He says, no, that's the last half of the second half. And it also includes a 30-day period after the second coming. What? So by arbitrarily chopping up Daniel's 70th week this way, he, listen, prepares the way for his rapture view. You know what that is? That's a fancy way of saying what? I'm twisting the scripture to fit my view. That's not how you interpret the Bible. The Bible speaks out to us. You don't go to the Bible and says, I want it to be this way, so now I'm going to look for scripture and twist it to make it work. But that's what he does, basically, uh, with that. Therefore, uh, again, he makes mishmash out of the scripture, and, and it just goes downhill from there. And the reason why is because it's like a house of cards. You get a nice little house of cards. God's, God's word is perfectly unified. He doesn't contradict himself. It's the same through and through. Leave it alone. It's perfectly uh, a continuous it never disagrees with itself. Old Testament, New Testament, that's one of the proofs of the scripture. Man never would whip this up. If man whipped this up, there'd be contradiction all over the place. There isn't, right? And if you end up getting contradictions out of it, it's a sign that uh, you're getting it wrong. Man's hand is involved in that. But that's what he does. He literally uh, makes mishmash out of the scripture with his position because he goes in it with a, a, a conception there. And we'll get to that in just a second. But again, just to recap, our belief based on what we believe on the Bible teaches, they, we believe that we're leaving pre- Hence, pre-trib, prior to the seven-year tribulation, we come back with Jesus at the end. We're in heaven that whole time. Pre-wrath basically says that, no, no, you're going three-fourths of the way. Post-trib was all the way. Pre-wrath says you're basically three-fourths of the way, uh, and then somehow you get relief after that. But again, as you can see, the pre-wrath position is completely opposed to the pre-trib position, just like the post-trib was, okay? And uh, I don't know about you, but it's not only messed up, but the more you get into it, it's probably one of the most confusing positions on the rapture ever. And I think I know why. But one guy, he even agrees with me that it's confusing. He said the pre-wrath view is not pre-trib view because it insists that the church will be present on earth during most of the seven-year tribulation, okay? The pre-wrath view is neither mid-trib because it insists that the rapture will occur after the midway point of the seven-year tribulation. The pre-wrath view is actually a post-trib view in that it teaches that the rapture will occur in the great uh, tribulation, but they redefine the great tribulation in a very bizarre way, which you get in a second. And instead of saying that the great tribulation ends at the same time as Daniel's 70th week, they say, no, 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 it ends just prior to the day of the Lord, which they say takes place at the end of the seven-year tribulation. Uh, but the Bible says it takes place at the beginning and moves forward. And therefore, quote, the pre-wrath view is post-trib, but not post-Daniel's 70th week, because it teaches the rapture will take place towards the end of Daniel's 70th week, but not the end. So uh, you got that? Yeah, it rhymes with confusion. Okay, in fact, it makes me want to say a statement like this, prophet. Watch this. What you talking about? What you talking about? What you talking about? What you, what you talking about, Willis? Yeah, what you talking about, Willis, is right. Another, another prophet of God. That's two in one sermon. This is amazing, right? But th that's where you're, you're, you're trying to understand this. And so I'm trying to work with you, but you're like, what a jumbled up mess. And again, folks, guess what? If you're interpreting the Bible correctly, you don't come up with a jumbled up mess. When you come up with a jumbled up mess, and then you got to have a scientific book to understand it and explain it, uh, it's a sign that's not from God. God is not the author of confusion. Man is, right? But that's what these guys do. And so we're going to break it down, uh, how they confuse 
and create confusion with their version of the raptures, the three-quarter view. And the first way that we're going to take a look at it is they confuse the timing of God's wrath. Okay, now right out of the gates, right out of the gates, uh, the, uh, they, they, they would say they agree with us with the pre-tribusition that the church is not appointed unto God's wrath. But the further you begin to uh, have them explain it, their version of God's wrath is all messed up. And it's not just messed up, it does not agree with the scripture. They say, and they would have us believe, that God's wrath is, listen, only limited to only the final quarter of the seven-year tribulation. As we saw before in our studies, no, once it starts, it's coming straight from the Lamb of God, Jesus, who last time I checked is God, and moves forward. And as always, don't take my word for it. Let's listen to God. Open your Bibles to Revelation 5. This is our opening text today. Revelation 5 and verses 1 through 5. And uh, this is the chapter before Revelation chapter 6. How many guys can figure that out as we get ready to turn there, okay? Now, Revelation 6, the reason why I say that is what? We're dealing with the context, which is an important thing to do. What's the three most important words in real estate? Location, location, location. What's the three most important words in proper, correct biblical interpretation? Context, context, context. So before we even get to Revelation 6, which is where the seven-year tribulation starts and then goes forward, let's see, in fact, where these judgments, i.e. where this wrath is coming from. And last time I checked, it's not coming from man or Satan as the pre-wrath theory would have you and I believe. But Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside of it. So I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. But then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the Lord of the tribe of Judah, the line of the tribe of Judah, who's that? Jesus the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's what? Seven seals. You may be seated as you can. But the Bible says before Revelation 6, what starts the seven-year tribulation, now we have the context in heaven of the one who's starting the seven-year tribulation who has the authority to do it. It's right here. It's Jesus, the Lamb of God, and he opens up the scroll. The scroll contains all of the judgments of the book of Revelation, chapter 6, 4 through 18, right? It's a unified scroll, right? And when you open up the seals is the first one. The seventh seal opens up the what? The next one, the trumpets, right? In the same unified scroll. And then when you get to the seventh trumpet, what's that open up? The bowls, which is the final judgments, but it's one scroll. It's got the seals on it. And here's my whole point. Where is this taking place? It's taking place in heaven. Who is the one who has the authority alone on heaven and earth, under the earth? Who's the only one who has the authority to open up this judgment coming to planet earth and unleash it on planet earth? Both answers correct, Jesus, as we saw according to that. So how could you sit there and say that this is partly the wrath of man, partly the wrath? It's coming from Jesus. That The context before it even gets started is coming from Jesus. And then once it starts, it's really reiterated it's coming from Jesus, right? We saw this before. The very first seals, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, the seals are the first part of the seven-year tribulation. They tell you where this is coming from. It ain't man or Satan. Right here, Revelation 6, 1, the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. I watched as who opened the first seal? The lamb. Who's that? That's Jesus. Hello. He's the one who opened the first of the seven seals. Revelation 6, 3, when the lamb opened the second seal, okay? Revelation 6, 5, when the who? The lamb opened the third seal, uh, Revelation 6, 7, when they, who? The lamb opened the fourth seal, right? Revelation 6, 9, and when he, he, contextually, who? Jesus, the lamb, opened the fifth seal. Revelation 6, 12, and I watch this. He, God, Jesus, the lamb, opened the sixth seal. Revelation 8, 1, and when he opened what? The seventh seal, which unleashes the seven trumpets, which then at the end of that unleashes the seven. Who's doing this? It says it right there, it's Jesus. So how can you sit there and say that this is coming from the wrath of man, the wrath? No. Jesus is the one who had the authority, five, it starts in six, and it says seven for seven. How do you get around this? It's coming from the lamb, Jesus Christ from God. Then on top of that, okay, when the judgment starts, it's also declared by the four living creatures who last time I checked don't work for Satan or man, right? They work for God. And that's what we see here, just to reiterate, where is this coming from? Who's responsible for it? Revelation 6.1, then I heard a, a, a one like the four living creatures saying a voice like thunder, come. 
And then that was the rise of the Antichrist, which starts the seven-year tribulation. Revelation 6, 3, and I heard a second living creature say what? Come, and then here comes the next judgment. Revelation 6, 5, I heard the third living creature say what? Come, and then there comes the, the, the next seal. Revelation 6, 6, and I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. And Revelation 6, 7, when the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of who? The fourth living creature say, Come. Now, here's the obvious question. Do the four living creatures, the cherubim that surround the very throne room of God, do they work for man? Do they listen to man? Do they heed the desires of Satan? So how could you sit there and say that this is part of man's wrath and Satan's wrath, and only the last part is uh, God's wrath? What Bible are you reading? Uh, apparently not the one and only Bible, okay? The four living creatures exist in heaven doing God's work, declaring his wrathful judgments to come. And that's why it's not just crazy to say and compartmentalize the seven-year tribulation. And then on top of that, you're going to say only part of it, in this view, three-fourths of it is not the wrath of God, when from the very beginning, it's from God. How can you say that? Okay, but again, that's what they do. And then just for more proof, once this, this is the seal judgments, very beginning, you keep reading the scripture, which I highly recommend, you're going to see that it's God's wrath all the way to the very end, from beginning to end, right? We saw this before, right? Here's this first verse, Revelation 6. Again, this is the sealed judgments. They even admit where this is coming from, right? They called on the mountains and rocks, what? Fall on us and hide us from who? The face of him who sits on the throne and from the where? The wrath of Satan, the wrath of man. What's it say here? We're in the first half. The wrath of the lamb. For great, uh, 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 the, day, the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? right? And some say, well, it just started right then. No. Contextually, even though the word wrath doesn't occur, but again, it's still the first half, but contextually, uh, the usage of famine, sword, and pestilence, the, the first four judgments there, those are always dealing with God's wrath. If you study the Bible, which again, I highly recommend, you see that in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Also, the verb there in the Greek has come, it's, at, it's past tense. So really what it is, is these people in the seven-year tribulation, in the first half, are finally admitting where this wrath has been coming from from the very get-go. It's the wrath of the Lamb. That's what's going on. And then from then on, it's all God's wrath through and through. Revelation eleven eighteen: 18, the nations were angry and you're God. Your wrath has come. Revelation 14, 10, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured out in a full strength into the cup of his, i.e. God's wrath. Revelation 14, 19, the angel swung his sickle on earth, gathered its grapes, threw them into the great winepress of what? Of God's wrath. Revelation 15, 1, I saw in heaven another... Great and marvelous signs, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them, whose wrath? God's wrath is completed. Revelation 15, 7. The one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of who? God, who lives forever and ever. Revelation 16, 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying, the seven angels go pour out the seven bowls of whose? God's wrath on the earth. Revelation 16, 9. Then the great city split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great gave her the cup filled with the wine, filled with the fury of his, i.e. God's wrath. So according to the scripture, which is where we're supposed to derive our belief system, including on the doctrine called eschatology, the study of last things, what's the Bible say? When the seven-year tribulation starts, where is it coming from? Started in heaven, Jesus had the scroll, which unlocks all the judgments. And from the, if you don't even get that in the context, from the very beginning, Revelation 6, 1, once it starts, it's the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb, the wrath of the lamb, all the way to the end. So again, here's my point. How in the world could you sit there and say three-fourths of that is only the wrath of man or Satan? It isn't just disagrees, folks. It's unbiblical. And dare I say, it's blasphemous because really think about it. How can you give man or Satan credit for what God is going to do? It's a big issue, Okay. Now, and you say, well, man, this is all messed up and confusing. Well, yeah. And the reason why, I think, is because when you do the research, you find out why it's so confusing. Is because, again, when Robert Van Campen, Mr. Multimillionaire, who paid to get this view out, okay, he had a confusing motive. And he didn't do what you're supposed to do. Where do we, how do we interpret the Bible? It's called exegesis, ex out, like the exit. We let the Bible speak out to us. That's why we've derived our belief system on eschatology pre-trib, because we believe that's what God speaks out to us, that we are not appointed unto his wrath, which is the whole seven-year church. So we can't be there, amongst other things we already saw. He didn't do that. He violated that biblical rule of proper interpretation, and he did what's called eisegesis. 
into. He read into the scripture what he wanted because he entered to the scripture like, here's what I wanted to say. Now I'm going to go search for verses to twist and make it come out that way. That's why it's so confusing. Now, if you want proof of that, here it is. I found in research uh, what he did. Why is it so confusing? How did he do this? Okay, and let's take a look at that. Robert Van Campen claims that, listen, he was torn between the pre-trib and the post views of the rapture. Now, stop right there. What you should have done is says, well, I'm hearing from both sides. What do you do? What we did. You go to the Bible and see who wins. Biblically, he didn't. Watch this. He agreed with his pre-trib friends that the church will not see the wrath of God. But he agreed with his post-trib friends that the elect will somehow become targets of the Antichrist persecution. So he felt there must be a common denominator to, quote, balance these teachings. What's that tell you? He wanted to twist the scripture to make it work, to create a blend of pre-trib teaching and post-trib teaching, and you can't. Quote, that's when he came up with the idea that the persecution of the Antichrist during the Great Tribulation will only be the wrath of Satan, not the wrath of God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And let me give you one quick example of just one verse that he twists to try to make this work, right? And he says, well, where's your proof that, there's this, that the seven-year tribulation is, uh, is, is not the wrath of God? Well, and typically what they'll do is they'll quote this verse, Revelation 12, 12. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He, Satan, is filled with fury, some translations, great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. There it is, Pastor Bobby. Satan's wrath is in the seven-year tribulation. That's why the church can still be in there. The pre-wrath position's right. Uh, No, that's not even what that verse is talking about. By the way, first of all, Satan's wrath in the context is a reaction to God's wrath that's been going on the whole time. God punishes Satan and casts him at this time down to earth. That makes Satan angry, right? That's all it's talking about. This, you completely ejected that out of the context just to fit your preconceived idea. It doesn't take away from the author of the wrath we saw that starts at the very beginning and goes all the way forward. And during that wrathful time, God makes Satan mad. That's it. But he wants to say, oh no, see, that's proof that three-fourths is not the wrath of God. Again, that's just a quick, easy, unfortunate example of what he does to try to make this preconceived conceived idea at work. In fact, the name itself, the whole thing's confusing. But even the name itself, if you think about it, is confusing and vague. One guy says this, the pre-wrath rapture name is both confusing and vague in that it is confusing because the pre-trib view, our view, is actually pre-wrath because we argue that what? That we're not appointed unto God's wrath, so we leave pre or prior to the seven-year tribulation, which is a full time of God's wrath. So the the pre-wrath title doesn't even really distinguish it from pre-trib. Also, the pre-wrath name is vague and confusing, and it doesn't even give us a clear indication as when their version of the rapture even occurs, right? The name pre-trib is obvious. It signifies that we what? We leave pre prior to the seven-year tribulation. Uh, The name mid-trib, which we disagree with as well. We'll get to that, Lord willing, eventually, if we're still alive in here. Okay, uh, but at least with that one, you what? You know when they're talking about the rapture. They believe in what? Mid-trib, middle of the tribulation. And even the post-trib view, which we just saw for three weeks is not biblical, but even their view, they believe that the tribulation, the rapture occurs what? Post or after, right? But not with the pre-wrath. Pre-wrath gives no indication as to when the rapture will occur in relation to the seven-year tribulation. So it's got a confusing title, which is not a shocker because you have a confusing belief system, which is not a shocker because you had a confusing motive. And again, this is a red flag. Anytime you come up with your so-called interpretation of the Bible and it keeps creating confusion, confusion, let alone contradictions, it's a sign you're getting it wrong. God is not the author of confusion. Man is. You need to drop it and get back down to what the scripture says. But that's only the first confusing point. The second one, by the way, Let's maximize this opportunity here, folks. Look at that screen. Keep looking at that screen. And repeat after me these incredible words of freedom. I will never eat chicken again. I will never eat cheese. Don't say I don't love you, because that's proof right there, folks. I'll, I'll resort to whatever it takes to set you free. Dare to be free. Chicken free is the way to be, right, Brian? Praise God for that, brother. But that's right. But here's the second thing that they do. They confuse the timing, not just of God's wrath, but the day of the Lord. Right? And, then, and again, it's, it's like a house of cards. Once you make one, you should never tweak scripture 
But you know you're in a false teaching that once you, once you tweak one, guess what it does? God's word, even chronological events, including chronological events in the seven-year tribulation, are perfect. But you tweak with one, everything goes down too. Now, for those of you wondering, is the universal sound for going down the tube. Uh, but anyway, uh, I don't know where that one came from. Uh, but anyway, uh, but the day of the Lord, they also mess that up as well, right? You mess up the God's wrath, you mess up the day of the Lord. Now, we already saw in our previous studies, the day of the Lord, according to the scripture, is the day of God's wrath. Old New Testament, do the study. It's a day of gloominess. It's a day of darkness, distress, trouble. Uh, it, it, it's a day of God's wrath and anger and desolation, vengeance and destruction is terrible, it's horrible. Uh, it, it refers to his cataclysmic final judgment upon the wicked, not the church, because we're not appointed unto wrath. Now, here's my whole point in saying that. Uh, even though the pre-wrath position says and agrees with us uh, that the church is not appointed unto wrath, they not only tweak the timing of God's wrath, they tweak this day of the Lord, right? The Bible says, since the day of the Lord is a day of God's wrath, we can't be a part of the day of the Lord. And the Bible also tells us when it begins. We just saw, when does God's wrath begin? the very beginning. So that's why the Bible says the day of the Lord starts at the seven-year tribulation when his wrath begins and then moves forward on in through the millennium. But that's not what they say. Let me just give you a little chart of what they say, right? Uh, first of all, again, we're on the day of the Lord. They, they believe the, 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 the birth pains, the seals and whatever, but we'll get to this in a second. They mess up the judgments of God too. Shocker. Uh, but they even have it going on into the, the second half. And it's like, no, that's just the first half, but they got to bleed, bleeding over. Then they take the great tribulation, right? Which we'll see in a second. The Bible says starts at the midway point, the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist goes up in the rebuilt Jewish temple, the halfway point, And then it goes all the way to the end, right? That's the second half. And it's the reason why it's called the great tribulation is basically you thought the first half was bad. You ain't seen nothing yet until you see the second half, right? But, the, but they compartmentalize that only to a portion, okay, of the second half. But then here, here comes this event called the what? The day of the Lord, watch this. They not only squeeze it into the back end, okay, but it's supposed to start at the very beginning because it's a day of God's wrath, which starts at the very beginning. But then they what? Then it continues on even after the seven-year tribulation, right? Okay, they redefine it to say that, listen, the day of the Lord occurs only in the final quarter of the seven-year tribulation. And, and that's how they say that's only when uh, God's wrath occurs, and we're saved out before that. And I don't know about you, but it's time for this prophet again. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what are you talking about, Willis? This makes no sense, right? It's just, it's, it, again, but again, it's not, in the one hand, surprising, because what'd you do? You, you came into the scripture with a preconceived idea. Here's what I want it to be. I want to blend this together. And it's like a house of cards. Once you tweak one thing, everything else gets messed up. And that's exactly what is going here. They, they twist the scripture, right? Again, the day of the Lord starts at the beginning, works its way forward. And once you, listen, not just mess with the timing of God's wrath, but now you mess with this thing called the day of the Lord, then guess what it does? It messes up every other timing that the scripture talks about this event. Let me give you one example of that, right? The scripture talks about this passage about the day of the Lord, okay? In 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 3, for you know very well that the what? The day of the Lord, here it is. He's gonna give you a description of it, okay? It will, it will come like what? Like a thief in the night, okay? Now, while people are what? Apparently, prior to the day of the Lord, and they're gonna get caught off guard, what are they gonna be saying? Peace and safety, and then what? Bang, the day of the Lord, the beginning of the seven-year tribulation comes, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So that's what the Bible says, and that fits with the pre-tribusition, right? We're out of here prior because we're not part of the day of the Lord, and while people are saying, peace and safety, peace and safety, right? Boom, seven-year tribulation starts, and boy, are they in for a ride, right? That's why we believe what we believe. It doesn't conflict with the day of the Lord, which you should never end up with a conflict because God doesn't create conflicts or contradictions. But here's the problem. If you want to say that this time frame, the day of the Lord, is at the very end, uh, the back end of the seven-year tribulation, then um, this leaves no time for peace and safety, Right? Peace and safety, people crying out for that, happens prior to the day of the Lord. And if you got this day of the Lord at the back end of the seven-year tribulation, the last time I checked, uh, the first three and a half years of the seven-year tribulation says that earth is in chaos, there's a global war, there's economic collapse, there's inflation, there's famine. Uh, inflation's so bad, it takes a day's wages just to buy food. And oh yeah, one-fourth of the earth died. 
That doesn't sound like peace and safety to me, right? Again, you mess with God's word just to fit your preconceived idea. Everything begins to fall apart. They mess up God's timing of his wrath because they want to fit it in the way they want it, okay? But they also mess up this event called the day of the Lord. One guy says this. He says, it should be clear that Van Campen resorted to a strained characterization of things like the day of the Lord, the seven-year tribulation, and the scope of God's wrath in order to support his new three-quarters rapture view. Can I translate that for you? It's obvious he twisted the scripture to fit his preconceived idea, right? That's why it's so confusing, right? Let me give you another one. The third one is he also confuses the timing of the judgments of the Lord. God's word is like a precise instrument, like a watch, right? And if you just take one spring out, what's going to happen? Time to go to Walmart and get that other $10 watch, okay? Uh, but it messes everything up, right? It's, you got to have all parts working. Leave it alone. It works great. Just don't touch it. Well, again, that's not what these guys do. In order to f- squeeze their view in, now on top of God's wrath, on top of the day of the Lord event, but now with God's judgment, man, they mess this up in a mega way just to try to squeeze the church in uh, into the very final, uh, the, the three quarters. Basically, here's how our, we believe the scripture goes when it comes to the judgments in the seven-year tribulation. We've got the rapture. Shortly after that, the seven-year tribulation begins. Revelation 6, Daniel 9, 27, Right? And then, of course, there's the midway point. That's why the first half is three and a half. And then there's the second half is three and a half, totaling of what? Seven years, one complete unit, Daniel's seventh week. But following the seals, we have the what? The trumpets in the seven-year tribulation. And then at the end of the seven-year tribulation is what? The bold judgments followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ, right? That's what the scripture teaches. That's why we believe it. Pretty straightforward, easy to understand, right? Not this one. Talk about confusing. Watch this. They got the sealed judgments which is supposed to be the first half, and look how far they go into it. They go well into the second half, right? And then again, look at where the trumpets are. The trumpets are at the final part of the seven-year tribulation, but look at where the bulls are. The bulls are outside the seven-year tribulation. It's like, what? It's a jumbled mess of confusion, Right? And let me, let me further break it down for you. Okay, here's what's going on. They mess up. Again, it's like a house of cards. You tweak with God's word, it just all goes downhill there. Not just his wrath, not just the day of the Lord, but now the events of God's judgment in the seven-year tribulation. The pre-wrath view messes it up in a massive way. First of all, the sealed judgments are continued over into the second half of the seven-year tribulation. Okay, Then after that, the trumpet judgments are moved all the way to the end of the second half, which is really where the bowls are supposed to be. Right? And then, as you just saw, the bulls are moved to the 30-day period after the close of the seven-year tribulation. It's crazy, right? Okay, and it confuses and, 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 and discombobulates between the seals and the trumpets and the bulls, right? Let me demonstrate that to you. They say the seals only involve the wrath of man, not the wrath of God, and that they'll take place in the first three and a half, but continues on into what their version of the great tribulation is, in other words, into the second half. What? And, and then the trumpets, they say, involve the wrath of God, and that'll take place during the day of the Lord, their version of it, while the bulls involve the wrath of God as well, but they take place after Daniel's 70th week, completed by 30 days following, okay? Uh, which means, according to this view, the seals are totally different in nature and character than the trumpets and bulls. You literally sliced and diced it. And yet, what do we just read in our opening text? Revelation 5, what? The seals, the trumpets, and the bulls are what? They not just come from the hand of God, they're what? It's a unified, self-contained scroll, That's all the events that are going to take place in the seven-year tribulation, and you chop it out. Why? Because he's entering it with a preconceived idea, trying to make his position fit. Now, let's go back to the great tribulation. The pre-wrath view says that the great tribulation, which the Bible defines midway point to the end, the second half. It's called the great tribulation because, again, you thought the first half was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's the birth pains analogy we'll get to in a second that, you know, it starts off with contractions and whatever, and as Mike and Carla recently found out, it gets worse as you go. But there's a payoff at the end. The baby, right? And this version that Jesus uses is called his second coming. But, but, they, but they, they shorten the second half, the great tribulation, uh, from a period of three and a half years to a, quote, unknown period of three and a half years. What? And again, they twist scripture. They take Matthew 24, 22 out of context because you got to find something that says shortened, even though that's not what it's talking about. Here's what they quote. And except those days should be what? Shorten. There should be no flesh be saved, for the, for, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Well, there it is. That's why we can arbitrarily just shorten this second half of the great tribulation. 
That's not even what that verse is talking about. It's crazy. But this, do you see what they're doing? They're going to the scripture. I got my preconceived idea. I got to find something to back it up. That's not how you interpret. Okay. That's not even what that, but it's essential. That verse is essential, but it's completely out of context. Now, we all agree that the tribulation, the great tribulation is the midway point of Daniel's 70th week. The question is not when it uh, begins, but when it ends, right? The pre-tribulation says it's the second half, right? Uh, and that's Matthew 24. Jesus talks about that. The pre-wrath view says, listen, it's less than three and a half years. Now, here's another problem it creates. The, the Bible says it's the second half of the seven-year tribulation. They said, no, it's less than a half. Okay, the second half, right? You got three and a half years, the first half, three and a half years, the second half. For those of you hooked on math and calculators, what does that add up to be? Seven. And why is that important? Because what are we talking about in the whole context? The seven-year tribulation. Where do we get that? Daniel, it's the final week. The seven, right? So it's, again, leave it alone. It's perfect math. But they, not, they messed that up too. Because if you're going to take the second half and say it's not really three and a half, but some undetermined thing, then guess what? It doesn't add up to be seven. So now you messed up the whole time in the whole seven-year tribulation. And yet they'd say, oh, no, it's seven years. Not according to your belief. It's, that's called hypocrisy in the South, if you're wondering about that. Okay. Uh, but again, uh, it leads you to, once again, have to say something like this. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> it just gets worse as you go, right? Willis is written all over this thing. I'll tell you why. Uh, but again, you're sitting like, where did they come up with this? How do they arbitrarily just take the second half, the Great Tribulation, and go, no, nah, it's just something short. Well, one guy puts it this way. Interesting. He says this. I came across an article published by the Worldwide Church of God, the cult. You guys remember our charismatic chaos study? The cult by Herbert Armstrong. Right? He said, I came across an article of that cult, and I was amazed to find that these people hold to the identical view of the pre-wrath people when it comes to defining this great tribulation. Okay, uh, And the worldwide church of God cult has been teaching these things since 1986 and probably long before that. And then again, Van Campen comes out with his view in about 1990, and it's like, I wonder where you got it from. I can't say thus saith the Lord, but if in fact you're being influenced by a cult, that's not a good sign. But even that, that's not what the scripture teaches. Now let's go back to the birth pains uh, analogy there. Again, they messed that up. The pre-wrath view is confusing because it messes up the birth pains, the childbirth analogy, right? And again, what did Jesus say? The, the tribulation starts with what? Birth pains. Matthew 24, that's what he goes through the whole thing. He's going through the seven-year tribulation. And it starts out with the sealed judgments. And they're bad. But that's why the second half is called the what? Great tribulation because you ain't seen nothing yet. Why? Because he's using the analogy of a birth pain. And again, as Mike and Carla found out, it starts off with, oh, ouch, 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 to, oh, and then what's it end on? Baby. Right? The blessing comes at the end, Right? Well, that's what Jesus is using to describe the whole seven-year tribulation. It's a perfect illustration because it starts little, and then the blessing. Pre-wrath messes that up too. And by the way, Jesus is the one who gave us the birth pains analogy, right? One guy, he talks about that. He says, listen, he said the pre-wrath view, we don't have that, that it starts out smaller and then gets worse and worse until the blessing comes the second coming. And the pre-wrath view the beginning labor and then the severe labor is followed by the day of the Lord, which is the worst of all. So therefore, according to them, the mother who thought she was going to be relieved by giving birth actually discovers to her horror that she's just given birth to a monster because now she's completed the hard labor, which you're expecting the baby. But basically he said, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. The worst is yet to come. It messes that up. And again, do you see a consistent pattern here with this view? Why is it so messed up? Why is it so discombobulated, jumbled up, and confusing? Because he entered in with a preconceived idea. I want to somehow make the Bible come out the way I want. I want to somehow mish together what my pre-trib friends believed, and then post-trib friends, and then we're all going to be a happy family. That's not how you interpret the Bible. But that's why it's so uh, messed up. But that's not all. They also mess up the second coming. Shocker, again, like a house of cards. They mess everything up, okay? Now, believe it or not, these guys would accuse you and I of teaching two comings with the pre-trib view. You're teaching two comings of the Lord, and there's only one. 
Uh, no, we're not. The rapture is not the same event as the second coming. We, that's how we answered that many times before in our study. The rapture, we go to be with Jesus in the clouds. He doesn't come to the earth. We go to be with him and then back to heaven. The second coming, we come back with him from heaven to the earth. Two totally different events. So we're not teaching two comings. There's only one second coming, right? Now, the irony is they're the ones who teach multiple comings, okay? Uh, and it's just pretty crazy because, again, they've got to fix it. Now, did you know that one verse that they will never quote uh, is uh, typically is John 14? Because John 14 tells us where we go at the rapture, right? Let me just uh, share that with you real quick. Uh, John 14, 3, and again, not just 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Thessalonians 4, John 14 is a rapture passage. So this tells us where we're going after the rapture. John 14, 3, Jesus speaking that where I am, where's Jesus right now? Right hand of the Father, there you may be what? Also, so when he comes back to get us at the rapture, where are we going? To heaven, right? But not according to pre-wrath, okay? And that's why they typically don't even want to have anything to do or even bring up this passage because it contradicts their theory. They actually believe that uh, there's going to be this continued descent and presence with the Lord. But the Bible says, no, we're not just going to go to Jesus and then continually descend with the presence of the Lord. It says right there, we go what? We go to heaven, right? And, but that's not what their view says. In fact, let me, I, I'm not making this up. This is, they accuse us of multiple comings of Jesus, but watch what they actually teach. This is wild. Look at this. They have not only the rapture at the three-quarters point, but then they say that Jesus comes during the day of the Lord, first time, if you don't even want to count their version of the rapture, okay? And then 30 days later, they say that he comes again, and then 45 days later after that, Jesus comes again, which makes me want to do this again. What you talking about, Willis? <laughs> what are you talking about, Willis? You accuse me of two different comings, but I'm not. I just explained that to you. But the hypocrisy is, how many do you got? <laughs> this is what they teach. According to them, uh, at the end of Daniel's 70th week, Jesus returns to save Israel from annihilation. Then at the end of the 30 days of reclamation, Jesus returns again to defeat Satan at the Battle of Armageddon. Then following the 45 days of restoration, Jesus returns to heaven, gathers his church, and returns to begin the thousand-year reign. Excuse me. Who's teaching multiple comings of Jesus Christ? As one guy says this, and I quote, this amounts to mass confusion, which is the code word. Guess what? You got it wrong. Because again, God is not the author of confusion. If you're coming up with something that's not just contradicting scripture, jumbled up mess, and frankly, it's just, well, huh? That's a sign that you got it wrong. And you need to get back to what the scripture uh, teaches. Okay, let me give you just one more. Again, all judgments, once you, it's like a house of cards. Once you tweak with one, and that's what they do, everything falls apart. They also mess up uh, what is called the destruction of the heavens and earth. Now, the Bible talks about that in Second Peter. That's not an event in the seven-year tribulation. Sometimes even pre-trib Christians, I think, get that wrong. It's like, okay, you know you're messed up with all due respect. The Bible teaches the, the chronology uh, is this. Right now, we're waiting for the rapture. Amen? There's no event that needs to take place. It can happen right now today. And praise God for that. We need to be ready. Right? But then shortly after that, what happens? Daniel 9, 27, Antichrist makes the covenant of Israel. Revelation 6, 1, the false peace, false utopia, Antichrist, rise the Antichrist, starts the seven-year tribulation. And then moves forward all the way through. Then we come back with Jesus at Revelation 19. Shortly after that, he sets up the millennial kingdom. Right? We get to rule and reign with him. It's going to be awesome. Peace with nature is fantastic. At the end, unfortunately, of the thousand years, that whole time Satan was bound, He's allowed to be released. He instigates a rebellion. God puts it down, bang, immediately. Then there's what's called the great right throne judgment. Those who rebelled against him in the millennial kingdom and those who've been stacking up in hell this whole time, okay, they appear before God and they go from the hell into the lake of fire, basically the frying pan from the fire. And then, Second <laughs> Peter 3, God dissolves the whole earth and, and the, the universe and to what? to prepare the way for the new heavens and the new earth. And we get to be with for him forever and ever. No more mourning, no more crying, no more death, no more pain, no more demons, no more Satan, none of that stuff. Forever and ever and ever. The theological term is the state of eternity. Makes sense, right? And that's at the very end. 
I am not joking, folks. Just like a house of cards, these guys messed that up. All because they had to tweak the scripture to fit their preconceived idea. Let's take a look at that as well. The destructions of the heaven and earth. Now, they confuse that event, and they say that this event takes place, listen, near the end of the seven-year tribulation. What? Because, again, they tweak the day of the Lord. And, and the destructions of the heaven and earth is a part of the day of the Lord. But remember, they tweaked it to try to fit the back end. So guess what? It messes this is up too. Again, once you tweak God's scripture, it messes everything up. It's a sign you're getting it wrong. They actually say that the dissolving of the universe will happen before the millennium, not after the millennium, as the Bible teaches. They also say that the new heavens and new earth will occur during the millennium instead of after. Okay, so they get that wrong as well. And that's because, again, they try to compress out of context the day of the Lord. Instead of being the second half, no, it's an term Simon at the back end of the seven-year tribulation. But the Bible says that the day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation, continues right on through the seven-year tribulation, right through the millennium. That's why this event of Peter is a part of the day of the Lord, because that's that time period, right? And it continues on. But again, 2 Peter 3.10, if you read it, it says that the earth and everything is going to be what? Literally, it says there in the Greek, the elements will be burned up. The elements will be melted. So the earth, literally down to the atomic level. Oh, it, could God do that? Yeah, he created the heavens and the earth. He could just say protons. And it's like a gigantic atomic bomb, not just to the planet, but to the universe. Goes up into a flaming fireball. Okay, so here's my point. If this took place during the seven-year tribulation, last time I checked, the earth and the universe going up in a flaming fireball leaves no survivors. I don't care how much asbestos you put on your Jeep or wrapped yourself in in your bug out shelter. You're dead. Do you see how goofy this is? It's like, you gotta be kidding me. So again, the pre-wrath, again, tweaking the timing, not just of the wrath, but of the day of the Lord, the great tribulation, it all falls down like a house of cards. It's crazy. But unfortunately, that's not all. The fourth confusing problem is they confuse the identity of the church. Okay, but once again, we're out of time, so we'll have to deal with that next time. Uh, but again, what's the question every single time? It's not just knowing this, yay, the rapture, I'm a Christian, yahoo. It's what? Are you ready for it? And it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to show that with how you live as a Christian, right? That we are what? We are longing for his appearing. We're loving him. We're growing up with him. And what are we doing? We're sharing the gospel as fast as we can. Why? Because it can happen anytime. So we need to not just say it, we need to show it. But if you're here today or if you're watching online, I don't know your heart, but God does. You can fool me, but you can't fool God. How many signs has God got to give you to let you know that, listen, it looks like our world is falling apart. And in one essence it is. But if you understand the scripture, it's really falling into place. And the good news is, if you get saved, you don't have to be a part of that place that God said is coming, the seven-year tribulation, let alone hell itself. And that's why God gives us signs that it's getting close. And if you look around, if you're honest, in the days that we live in, this is some of the biggest signs ever in the history of the church is getting close. Even in our own country, if you've been paying attention to the last several administrations, the stage is being set for an antichrist to institute his global tyranny. And you better take the one and only way out through Jesus Christ before it's too late. As this video shows, we'll close in prayer after this. nation are no longer a Christian nation. Change has come to America.
world in which there is the very real prospect of a new world order. We've got to give them a stake in creating the kind of uh, a world order that I think all of us would like to see. But the burdens of global citizenship Proposing to spend more than three and a half million dollars. The national debt is now over $100 million. The collapse of Building 7. Taking lives now, you need justice department. Checking in on the work of Building 7. Grief reporters. Terror relief. The U.S. is on an unsustainable path. It's going to happen that fast. If you're a Christian, you say you're ready. You need to show it, not just say it. You're going to live for Jesus. You're going to love him. You're going to get into his word. You're going to develop an intimate walk with him. We're going to need his strength more than ever in his wisdom. The scripture says we're going to need each other in a huge, mighty way. But the scriptures not only says, don't forsake the assembly of the brethren, but it says, as the day of evil approaches, we're going to need each other. We're going to need each other's back and be there. But we're out of here. And so we also need to get busy sharing the gospel, amen? But if you're here, there is only one way out. There is not a political savior coming. The government is not going to save you. The good news is Jesus Christ can today if you would just call upon his name. Amen? Well, hi, this is Billy Crone of Get Life Ministries, and I hope you were blessed with this study. But in closing, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple of things that the Bible says. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the wages of our sin or unholiness is death? In other words, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and be separated from God for all eternity. This is the great cosmic dilemma. God who is holy and we are not... How can we have a relationship with Him? The two will never mix. Now, to make matters worse, we don't even want to admit this, even though God already knows He's God. And so God, out of love, gave us something called the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were not something to just memorize or stick on your wall or give the appearance of being a religious person. The Ten Commandments were God's divine x-ray, if you will, into our heart and soul to reveal this truth that we need to admit. And that is this, that God is holy and that we are not. We are disqualified for heaven. So let's take a look at that divine x-ray that God's trying to get us to realize. Uh, the, the Ten Commandments, the, the ninth one says, you shall not bear false witness. That's lying. 
Okay. How many guys have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. Okay. Well, if you didn't raise your hand, you just did. You just told a lie because we've all done that. Well, that makes us a liar. The, another Ten Commandments says that you shall not steal. Don't ever take anything without permission. How many of you guys uh, have ever done that? Well, you guys already said you're a bunch of liars. All of our hands should have went up on that one. And for being honest, God already knows. Folks, we've all taken something. We've stolen something, right? That makes us a thief. Another Ten Commandments says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. He's not just holy. Even his name is holy. Hey, folks, let's be honest. If you can believe it, even the name of Jesus Christ uh, has been turned into a common cuss word. Well, the Bible says that's a sin of blasphemy. Now we're a, a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus said, here's his standard. Uh, uh, even if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you committed adultery in your heart. Wow, so now we're an adulterer. The Bible says you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, at least I haven't done that one. Really? Again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred, wishing somebody was dead, okay, that, that's the same thing. Uh, it's akin to the sin of murder. It's just you pulled the trigger in your heart, but God sees the heart. Hey, folks, that's just five out of ten. How are you doing? You still think you're going to get to heaven on your own? You still think that you're qualified, that you're holy like God, and you could bridge the gap and have a relationship with Him forever? I don't think so. I mean, what did we just see? You're going to stand before God, and so am I. We all are. And we're going to have to give an account for who we are. Hey, hey, God, let me in. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a liar. I, I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer. I'm an adulterer. I'm a murderer. And the Scripture is very clear, folks. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of God. We're in trouble. But folks, here's the good news. The Bible says that if we would just admit that, that's the first step, to admit that God is holy, that I'm not, I'm disqualified for heaven, I need a Savior. If we would admit that and then ask for the Savior to save us. That, that's what God was doing with Jesus. God gave us His Son, Jesus Christ. He took the death penalty in our place, so that we could be completely forgiven of everything we've ever done and be made holy through Jesus so that we can now have a relationship with God both here and now and forever in heaven. We can become qualified. The word that the Bible uses is a word called pardon, that God is willing to pardon us of all of our sins and crimes that we've committed against Him and disqualified us, that disqualified us for heaven, right? And we've actually seen this work in real life. Uh, for instance, uh, there's been people who have committed crimes, gone to court, the gavel's been passed, the judges said, hey, listen, we all know you're guilty, uh, you even admit you're guilty, and uh, for your crimes, you're going to not just jail, you're going to uh, await in jail to go to the death penalty. And did you know that there actually is a way that somebody could get off of death row? It's called a pardon. The one in the authority, the governor can grant what's called a pardon for that person's crimes, and they literally can go free. Not because of something they did, because the deeds are already done, you can't undo it. Not because of they tried to clean up their act while they were stuck in the jail cell, because that doesn't change anything. But simply out of mercy, the person who has the authority can give them a pardon, and they can go free. And did you know it's actually on historical record that there have been people who have been granted a pardon from the death penalty, and they've refused to take it. And so even though the offer was there to be set free, they themselves still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, in a nutshell, that's what God's doing every single day with all of us this side of heaven. While you still have breath, you still have an opportunity to receive God's pardon. He's willing to forgive you of all your sins if you would just receive His pardon through Jesus Christ. Again, that's what he was doing on the cross. The cross was the death penalty of the day. But since we weren't there, and since we can't earn it, it's a gift from God, you have to receive that by faith. Reach out even today from your own spiritual jail cell, if you will, and say yes to Jesus and God's pardon so that you can be set free and go to heaven. The Bible says that if you will confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the grave, you will be saved. Hey, folks, if that's you, don't delay. You may not even have tomorrow. Today could be your last day. Please accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess with your mouth He is the Lord. Believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the grave, and the Bible says you will be saved. 
Well, this has been Billy Crone of Gill Life Ministries. If there's anything that we could do for you, our information and, and number will come up here shortly. And please don't hesitate to contact us. But remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.